following sermon is from Faith Bible Church, located in Murrieta, California. More information about Faith Bible Church is available at www.faith-bible.net. I'm not sure whether you can actually recall this kind of experience. You're at school, you're at work, and something happens and you feel like somebody put you in a box and they judged you and they looked at you in kind of a a narrow kind of way. Sometimes we do that with one another, even in the church. Each of you have been put in a box at some point, you've been judged, you've been treated partially, even unfairly. For example, maybe you, you were put in some sort of wealthy box, a rich box, because you decided that one Sunday you would wear your mother's jewelry that she left you after she died, and you thought, I'm going to wear that, and everybody judged you. Or maybe you have curbed your tongue a little bit, and you're trying to watch your speech, and people around you are starting to go, you know, he's ignorant. He doesn't know anything because he doesn't say anything when you're actually just trying to watch what you say. Or possibly from your past, you have some crazy wild tattoos. And so everybody thinks now as they come up to you, they put you in a box of wild woman, right? That's what you are. We tend to do that with one another externally. We tend to evaluate one another And most of us have wrestled with a form of Christianity that is obsessed with eternals and externals, okay? In other words, too many of us are quick to draw conclusions about people solely based on a first impression, a first impression. Churchgoers forget 1 Samuel 16, 7, man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. We love to put people in boxes and then make them live up to the box that we've given them. I used to do that with a little boy named Benji Esparza. I think I've told you about him. He was in junior high. He was the kid that we always made fun of. uh, And because he was not an athlete, he didn't do, you know, really, you know, the sports that we did. Uh, But every time in physical education, he's the one that did all the jumping jacks. He's the one that did all the push-ups. It was really crazy. One day, he actually won the best time on the obstacle course, and we're all freaking out, kind of like, well, that must be a nerd anomaly, because he was a nerd, you know? He's the guy that when he did jumping jacks, and he tucked in his shirt in gym. Come on, guys. He tucked his shirt in, which is what we were supposed to do, but Benji did it. Interesting enough, at the end of the year, they announced the... uh, basically the athlete of the year. And it wasn't a football player, it wasn't a basketball player, it wasn't a track star, it's always one of those. It was Benji Esparza. And we had to adjust our thinking because we had put him in a nerd box. Even when he did something good, we go, no, he's a nerd. Because we had to reevaluate. And well, we've all experienced that. All of us. You know, he's too skinny. They dress funny. Uh, what, what's with all the, you know, the, the decorations? Uh, that, that car's way too expensive for them. Uh, that house is way too big. She never graduated from high school. He has three PhDs. Uh, they went to public school. They were homeschooled. They need to be schooled. You know, they got something. They're way too neat. They're way too opinionated. Regardless, someone will put you in a box, and then 
They'll make you live up to your preconceived idea of who you are and treat you accordingly. Every one of us in this room has faced that reality. Some of us do it regularly to others. We have an external criteria we filter our perceptions through when it comes to other people. We make judgments about things we don't know about. But as Christians, God's expectation for us is to be different. We are to be different than this world. Those of us who are in union with Christ, with a new nature and dwelt by the Spirit of God, our external evaluations have to change. We have to change. We have to look at people with His lens, not the world's lens. You're going to see that a lot today. We need to have a clearer lens, which is the Word of God. We need to look at people through the way that the Lord looks at people. We, we need to become no respecter of persons. We must become someone who doesn't play favorites. We cannot be partial. Why? Because your God is not a respecter of persons. The Bible tells us that repeatedly, that He is not a respecter of persons. In fact, I would wager that if Christ was a respecter of persons, He wouldn't have saved you or me. But He didn't. And because being non-partial is so much a part of His character, who He is, then we who are His children will strive to be the same. We need to be driven to be the same. In, in the law, God emphasized in Deuteronomy 10, 17, look at it, for the Lord your God is the awesome God who does not show what? Partiality. At the salvation of the first Gentiles in Acts chapter 10, verse 34, Peter said, I most certainly understand now, now that he saved these Gentiles, these horrible dogs that we used to just disdain and hate, he says, God is not one to show partiality. Proverbs 24, 23, to show partiality in judgment is not good. It is not good. To be like our Lord Jesus Christ, you and I cannot be partial. To love others, we must be impartial. In fact, not selective, not inconsistent. And this is the test now that James gives us in his epistle in chapter 2. Believe it or not, we're at chapter 2. James, if you would open your Bibles there, if you're not there already, to chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. We're going to look at half of this passage today. And James has been thinning the ranks of the Jewish professors who have been scattered around the New Testament world. And by his direct instruction, he has assaulted the inauthentic faith wannabes. And with this first letter of the New Testament, James is calling all professors to be possessors. If they do possess Christ, then they will live like a bright light in a dark room. They'll, they'll live like a uh, you know, the, the seasoning on a tasty meal, that's what the Bible says when it says, I want you to be salt and light. We should be attractive. We should be tasty to this world. And part of that, a big part of that, are you ready? Is how you treat people. One of the biggest parts is going to be how you treat people. So this issue of partiality is absolutely essential to our witness, to your effectiveness as being a representative of Jesus Christ in this world how we behave around other people. To do that, James calls them and us to express unique convictions in everyday life. Now, he's already taught us several convictions that we need to develop, and hopefully you're remembering these, that if you're going through a trial, then consider it joy knowing that God is at work in this trial. 
And if you're battling with temptation, don't blame God, but accept full responsibility for your sin and trust God's character and depend on his salvation in order to overcome sin. And then in the latter part of the chapter one, he told us that you need to practice God's word on a regular basis. Make sure that you're not just a hearer of the word, but a a doer of the word. And so he wants you to make sure that you're manifesting the fragrance of Christ and not the stink of this world. And so he's manifesting those ways that actually prove your faith, that show whether you're a Christian or not, but also give you an incredible impact to the cultural around you and cause the church to function the way that God wants the, uh, the church to function. Charles Swindoll said it plainly. He said, people who naively embrace a sit-back-and-watch kind of comfy Christianity will have a hard time with James, right? Because he goes for the throat in this issue. And then chapter 2, he wants to shatter the fantasy world of flimsy faith here by digging deeply into the quality of your love. He wants to test the way that you love others, how you deal with others. He wants to make certain you love fairly, and rightly and justly? Do you love equally and impartially, or do you play favorites? Do you sacrifice for the poor as well as the wealthy? Someone comes into your house or your room or this church, and you know that they're extremely wealthy, will you treat them the same as the rest of us? Will you? Because that's what he's talking about here. Uh, will you care the same for those who are really tatted up? Man, they've got a full sleeve on both arms. And someone who's just, you know, not tatted at all. They don't even do henna. You know what I mean? (laughs) Are you going to treat the famous the same as the unknown? The important and the important? Listen, if the great Charles Haddon Spurgeon walked into this room, would you treat him differently than you would treat me? You say, well, yeah, because he's dead. Okay, I, (laughs) I get it. I get it. Well, understand, we live in a fame culture, a fame culture. It's all about being famous. Notoriety is the biggest issue in our culture. Do you treat regular people the same as the famous? The media darlings, the, the movie stars, the political favorites, even Christian heroes, do you treat others the same? That's the point of this text. James says Christians are not to be partial, not to be prejudiced, and not to play favorites. And the English word for prejudice comes from the Latin, which emphasizes the prejudgment of someone. Prejudgment. Causing us to form an opinion before we know all the facts. So, to diffuse these tendencies in your life, basically James writes chapter 2, 13 verses here, in order to prove your love, and if you're a Christian, to sharpen your love. To sharpen it. One of the great tests of the Christian life, you cannot escape this in the New Testament, is love. Do you love? It is so vital that we sacrifice for one another, that we care for one another, that we reach out to one another, that we encourage one another. All those manifestations of love, sacrifice towards each other. A true test of your faith is do you love the unlovely the same as the lovely? Do you love the unlovely the same as the lovely? Remember what the Apostle John says love looks like. Look at it, 1 John 3, verse 16. He says, I want you to know when it's impartial, it looks like this. We know love by this, that when he laid down his life for us, we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. 
But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother, a Christian, in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but what? In deed and in truth. In action. It should be displayed. It should be lived out. On the heels, again, of calling us to live the word of God, to be a doer of the word, he mentions in verse 27 of chapter 1, look at it, the widow and the orphan, right? He mentions those who are the most needy in that particular culture. And so now he opens chapter 3, verse you know, 1 through 13, calling us to equally love everyone, not just love the widow, not just love the orphan, but love everyone with that same kind of dedication. Treat everyone with the same sacrificial action. Love people equally. Don't become a respecter of persons. Now, if you're like me, you're going to go, man, this is going to take some work. Because we're all prone to react to different people different ways, right? We are all prone that way. So James is going to give us six points out of these 13 verses, and they come right out of the text. We're going to look at three of them today, three of them next time when we get to the rest of this passage, and understand these are not forced on the text. We're trying to draw out these principles from the text to show you what it means. And so what he does first is he's masterful. He gives you a sound, powerful principle right up front. Very, very punchy, right up front, verse 1. Then, James, being the master communicator, gives us an incredible illustration, an amazing illustration. And then he talks about the reasons why, in in verse 5, 6, and 7, why partiality is inconsistent with a true, authentic faith. We cannot continue to go down this road. Listen, it may not be the main disease of your life, but it is a disease. It is something that, that, that we have to adjust our thinking. We have to make choices. Remember, do with the word, making choices dependent on the Spirit of God to say, I'm going to now treat people differently. I'm going to love this person who's raggedy as much as I'm going to love the guy in the three-piece suit. I'm going to make sure I'm not going to make external evaluations. I'm going to love people equally. And so he starts with, number one in your outline, an intense exhortation. An intense exhortation. Favoritism is a preferential attitude and treatment of a person or a group. So James starts with verse 1. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal, what? Favoritism. Claiming to be a born-again follower of Christ, a born-again follower of the glorious Lord Jesus Christ here in this context, while practicing partiality is contradictory, It's inconsistent. It's, are you ready? Sin. It's sin. You Christians, individually and as families and as a church, we are, you are, to be unique. To be unique in the way that you treat others, whether rich or poor, whether smart or average, whether pretty or unfortunate, whether engaging or boring, whether famous or unknown. This intense exhortation is saying to you, do not play favorites. Do not play favorites. Now, theologically, there are reasons why your love should not be partial. Theologically, every person alive in this room had to be chosen and called in order to be given salvation and made a child of God. We had to be chased down by God in order to be given salvation. Every person alive here in this room falls short of the perfect bullseye of God's character. 
We all fall short. We all miss his character. Every person in this room rebels against God's law we were meant to follow. Every person in this room battles with a sinful bent like Abraham's lying or David's lust. And every person in this room, every person alive will be judged by their deeds. No matter who will be judged by your deeds. So no matter what you look like, no matter how rich you are, no matter what kind of shortcomings you have, no matter what your size, your race, your background, your influence, your personality, your looks, you are all in the same deadly situation, are you not? We all need a savior. We all need to be rescued. We all need to be forgiven. Can I hear an amen by that? That's the unifying element. And God looks at us as either forgiven or condemned, given life or under eternal death, headed to heaven or headed to hell. Impartiality, impartiality has to do with looking at others the way God does. One more time. Impartiality comes when you see people as saved or unsaved. When you see them as lost or found. When you see them as Christ, in Christ, and for Christ, or against Christ. When you see them as beggars who've found bread of life and those who are still starving. As those in a relationship with Christ and those who are still in religion. But when you see others through the lens of this world, then you will see rich poor. You will see cool and uncool. You'll see studs and nerds. You'll see jocks and slobs. You'll see nice and mean. You'll see cheerleader and others. You'll see impressive and average. You'll see kind and cruel. That's the world. That's the way the world works. But when you see others through the lens of God's word, you will see Christian and you will see non-Christian. Impartiality has to do with looking at others with God's categories. And partiality has to do with looking at others with your categories or the world's categories. Thinking like God or your thinking. Uh, the world's lens or the word's lens. So James says, what's he say? Look at verse 1. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. Now, students, when you find a special friend and then you cut yourself off from all other friends, that's partial. When you only hang out with a cool group and never reach out to others, that's partial. When your close friends have all the inside jokes and you make others feel bad because they don't understand what you're talking about, that's partiality. And when you won't even add a girl to your team, junior hires, until you're forced to, that's partiality too. Faith in Christ and partiality are incompatible. Incompatible. Understand, the command is a continual and pointed, verse 1, do not be holding this. Do not claim to be a Christian. Do not, at the same time, be claim to be a Christian, and at the same time, be partial. Notice verse 1, he calls them brethren. You see it there? They have a sound theology. They see Christ as glorious. And James 1, he's addressing Christians here. So what he's saying, Christians, is something's wrong. Christians, something's wrong. Their attitude wasn't right. It didn't fit their faith. The Greek for personal favoritism, write this down, it is a compound word meaning receiving the face. Receiving the face. You're looking at people. That's a good way to look at it. You're looking at people only on the basis of their face, their externals. You look at their outward appearance, their face. You receive that image as if it's the real thing when God says the real understanding of who you are is to understand your what? Your heart. Not your face, your heart. Who you really are is internal, never external. 
Now, favoritism can falter in two different ways. But merely looking at the outside, you can miss the fatal character flaws that are internal in a person masked by an attractive attire, a smooth talk, and a firm handshake, i.e. salesman. Not all, but there you go. On the other hand, by merely looking on the outside, you can too quickly condemn a person based on their outward appearance and miss seeing the Christ-like character that drives their life. Traveling around the world, hey, uh, it works a lot, helps a lot, because it helps you to understand that people look really, really different, and they can be on fire for Christ. They can have deep character that you don't even recognize, and you wouldn't even see it on the outside. James says, verse 1, you must not evaluate on the basis of externals on appearance. And this is why he describes his half-brother. Would you notice this description? Please look at verse 1 carefully. Our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. This is very powerful. Here is God, the creator of the universe, the, the one who is all glory in heaven, who lived on earth for 33 years in the appearance of just a man. Here's Christ, veiled in human flesh. You could not determine by his appearance that Jesus is the God who created you. Everybody that he met on planet earth in his earthly ministry, he created. He made them. He did. You couldn't see it. He just walked like a man. He talked like a man. Understand, our entire faith is, our salvation is resting on the God-man, Christ, who took our, upon our nature, bore our sin, accepted our curse on the cross while appearing as just a man. This is intentional. James writes this intentionally, describing Christ as glorious here to remind you to never be like the religious leaders who judged Christ externally, and to fail to see who Christ really was. Don't be like the non-Christian and and fallen humanity who judge Christ as just a man. And here's where it really gets incredible. Don't be like James. Don't be like James who writes these words, who lived with Christ for over 30 years and didn't understand who he was until the resurrection of the dead. He calls him his half-brother, glorious, God's glory, Lord Jesus Christ. He's telling you appearances can be deceptive. Would you agree? We must not act like the rejectors exercising partiality towards others externally. How might this happen? Well, let's look at the incredible illustration. Number two in your outline, the insightful example. The insightful example. Now, you know what an illustration is. Your, your house is completely pitch black, and then you put the curtains aside, and you roll up the window, and all of a sudden, the entire house is just shredded with light, right? It, it opens up. You begin to see things clearly. Well, that's what an illustration is. It, it gives light to this particular subject, understanding to our minds, and I love it. James doesn't just leave us here with a rule to follow. James doesn't just leave us here with a principle to practice. He gives us an illustration that we can understand what he's talking about. So what's he say in verses 2 to 4? Take a look at it. 
For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes, and say, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and have become judges with what? Evil motives. Now the setting here, notice the very first verse there, verse 2, is the assembly. It's, it's not the word for church, it's the word for synagogue. Synagogue, it means meeting place. In the early church, they were just like FBC. They met where they could, right? I mean, if they got a gym, they got a gym. If they got the football stadium, they got a football. They met wherever they could, and that's what they did. So we're very early church here, all right? And James knew all the Christian Jews reading this letter would be able to picture the seating arrangements of the typical synagogue. Almost all synagogues were built the same. They were almost all built the same. So they would understand that when he's explaining this, they would get it. So as the early church gathers for worship on Sunday, two men stand out. One of them is dressed to the nines. I mean, he's got fancy jewelry. He's got expensive clothes. This is a person of great wealth. All right, that's number one. And he's, uh, you know, basically in the first century, he would use a lot of bling, and they loved wearing bedazzled, all right? You understand those terms, right? Bling and bedazzled. You say, Chris, you're making that up. No, it's right there in the text. I'm actually just drawing out the meaning for you. He literally means bling, and he literally means bedazzled. He does. You say, what are you even talking about? Well, rings were common, but a gold ring was not common. A gold ring was not. In fact, to impress others of the first century, they have discovered that there were actually ring shops where you could rent a gold ring so you could impress people. So a gold ring is a big deal, but this guy has not rented this ring. This ring is his gold ring, and fine apparel, it says. You see the word fine there? That literally means glittering and brilliant. Ornamentation. He's talking about bedazzle. Exactly. The, the wealthy often had jewels and bright stone-studded garments of silk bedazzling their clothing, announcing that they were people of wealth and they were people of means. So this is what he comes in, man. He is dressed to the nines. And James kind of catches his readers off guard here because they'd know that this was not common. It was not common for the extremely wealthy to come to church. It was not common then, it's not common today. It would be unusual for this type of wealthy individual to attend. So also attending church that day is a poor man in grubby, soiled clothes. Now there's no jewels here, there's no silk, there's no entourage to protect him. In fact, the Greek word poor there is abject poverty, and dirty actually means vile, filthy, and smelly. This guy wore one robe, and he wore it to everything. He wore it to to work in, he wore it to sleep in, it was a stinky, dirty robe, all right? So basically, he's describing the wealthy man as extremely wealthy, and the poor man as what? Extremely poor. So then what does the usher do, or what does the Christian do in this context? Well, he has to make a decision, and in this situation, his own character shines through, because the usher is blinded by the bling. He's blinded by it. In fact, the rich man gets VIP treatment. The usher is given, literally, giving orders here. The usher in the text here, these are, you don't know this, but he's commanding him. He's giving orders. These are commands. You sit here, you stand there. 
He's telling them what to do. You're, you're not going over here. You're going over there. You're not going over here. You're going over there. He's telling them what to do. In a synagogue, there were limited seats. Now, if this was a synagogue, then there would actually be one row right here, just one, and on the other side of the gym, there would be one row. If this was a synagogue, it would be a lot smaller, but there'd be one row of seats on the side, one row of seats on the side, and there's kind of a, a middle area, and that's it. And amazingly, those are the only seats that are available. So limited seating. Everybody else is standing the whole time. Some people would, might bring their own chair, okay? So a little FBC action on the track. Uh, so we got that going for us. And on the corners, on the very corners, way over there where Sarah is, there, there's actually, this is all flat, just like this, very uncomfortable, very, just, we wanted to get you the full experience today. So very, very uncomfortable. But on the end, on the end, they would actually, stonemasons would dig out a little concave seat, you know, that would fit your bottom really nice, real comfortable. And that was the, are you ready? The chief seat. That was the chief seat. So possibly this rich man is getting a chief seat or at least one of the seats. He's getting one of the good side seats here before the, the service is going to take place. And the poor man has said, you know, you, you can stand over here in the back or you can sit down by my footstool, which is he's got a little footstool here to kind of help him uh, as he's sitting in the synagogue. And sometimes the seats were actually kind of high, so they would have little footstools. So you cannot sit on my footstool. He wasn't good enough to sit on the footstool. He needed to sit by the footstool on the floor. You could sit on the floor by me. Isn't that nice? Anyway, this is what he's doing. So to be clear, this illustration is not about being poor and it's not about being rich. There's nothing wrong with being poor. There's nothing wrong with being rich. That's just the circumstances that God has put us in. What James is talking about is bad motives. Bad motives that cause believers to be partial, which is preferential treatment. Preferential treatment. So you show preferences to people who have qualities that you're enamored with, and then you show disdain for people who have qualities you're disgusted with, then you're partial. Now, why was the poor man treated unkindly and the rich treated with preferential care? Well, John MacArthur states it this way, quote in your notes, there is something built into our fallenness that is partial to people who look nice, smell pleasant, and are wealthy, such partiality is at the heart of the sin that James is exposing here. So look at verse 4. James announces his verdict, all right? The usher is guilty of discrimination. Discrimination. He made distinctions based on clothing. Wait, clothing, not character. Clothing. And he became a judge with evil motives. Verse 4, he says, Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives. To act with partiality is to make distinctions, to make separations, to make divisions, to make discriminations. It, it's showing favoritism based on unimportant external criteria. There's nothing more low than evaluating someone on the basis of their clothes their clothes and the greek word evil there you might want to circle it because in the text it actually means vicious vicious motives when you show partiality you're you're not just being unloving you're being vicious you're evaluating and demeaning other people so 
What were his motives? Well, the same as yours might be. He was thinking personally. If I give this rich guy a nice seat, then maybe someday he'll bring back and give me a personal favor, you know, a personal favor. Or he might be thinking corporately that if I treat this rich guy really nice, maybe that'll mean a big contribution for the church, you know, down the road here. And so James could not be clearer. This kind of prejudice is, write it down, sin. It is sin when you cater to the rich and prominent, when you shun the poor and the common, when you treat anybody with more attention or less, more sacrifice or less, more love or less, when you discriminate over race, over job, over fashion, over career, over position, over influence, you are sinning. Now, this is not about the usher. This is not about that one Christian there. It's about every Christian in this room. But there is a challenge here for you ushers. I knew an usher at Grace Church, true story, stood at the door when a young junior hire came in and he had a holy t-shirt, no kidding. He had no shoes, dirty feet, torn jeans, and they were disgusting. And this usher is in a three-piece. I know him personally. And what did he do? He looked down at this junior higher and said, how you doing, son? He said, you coming to church today? He goes, yes, sir. He said, that's great. I got a special seat for you. He began to love on him a little bit with conversation. He walked him down to the front row. He said, this is your seat. And, and this junior higher is absolutely aghast. And he hands him a pew Bible and he says, if you need any help, you let me know and walk back and continue to usher. That junior hire's name is Jerry Maddy. He came to Christ that week. That week. Over the love of an usher who said, I, I don't, it doesn't matter what you look like. I'm going to love on you. I'm going to give you the best place. I'm going to let you know that Christ and our God is not a God who makes distinctions. He doesn't. He does not play favorites. And that is the great power of living without partiality. But there's a great violation of God's character, a poor witness, and sin when we're partial. So number three in your outline, the inconsistent error. The inconsistent error, verses 5, 6, and 7. James loves his readers, but he also loves the truth, and he wants to make sure you understand the truth. So he commands, verse 5, take a look at the very beginning of verse 5, hearken, listen, pay attention to God's word here, my beloved brethren. What is it, James? What do you want to say? To be partial to the rich and to turn your back on the poor is massively inconsistent. Massively. In light of God's choice of saving mostly the poor and in light of the rich who more often than not blaspheme God. Now, um, the, the, it's almost as if James was making general, generalities, but these are true. Most people who come to Christ are in the poor category worldwide. They are. And most wealthy people don't come to Christ because they don't sense the need in their own life. And most of the attack against Christianity that comes, whether to direct Christians or to worldwide, is from the wealthy and the powerful. And so he's saying, you're being inconsistent. You're being inconsistent. Take a look at what he says in verses 5 through 7. Listen, my beloved brethren. Did not God choose the poor of this world to be what? Rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. Not every poor, but a lot of poor come to Christ, which he promised to those who love him. 
but you have dishonored the poor man, is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Uh, Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? Now, verse 5, James says, when you show partiality, you're despising the very ones whom God often chooses. Uh, when you're the poor here are not the poor in spirit you know the humble of heart he's talking about actually literally people who are financially poor they don't have the necessities of life they don't have enough food they don't have enough clothing they don't have shelter they are the financially poor and they know it and they are aware of their need and and they have no one to turn to but who god and so many of the poor would then turn to christ but not all the elect by the way are poor Abraham was wealthy, correct? Job was wealthy. Joseph of Arimathea was wealthy. Zacchaeus was wealthy. They were rich. But the Lord has a special affection for the poor, and most believers worldwide are poor. This is the point. Why? Because they recognize their need. They recognize their need. They see their desperation. Psalm 68, verse 10, you provided in your goodness for the poor. Isaiah 25, you have been a defense for the helpless, a defense for the needy in his distress. In the law, you understand this, that God provided a sacrificial system that would then care for the poor. The Sabbath year, basically, when all debts of the poor were forgiven, that was the Sabbath year. The year of Jubilee is when all the slaves were set free, all of them. They they got a share, the poor did, of every single harvest of every single field, just a share of it. They had interest-free loans. They even had promised employment for the poor. God has a special concern for the poor, and that love should be shown toward the poor and those different than us. Why? Well, speaking of myself... And maybe speaking of you, would you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. For consider your calling, brethren, that there are not many wise among, uh, according to the flesh, not many not mighty, not many noble. For God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world, the poor things of the world, to shame the things which are strong, so that no man may boast before God. Right? In contrast to the world's appraisal of the poor, James says the poor, verse 5, are rich. And that would be Romans 10. We're abounding in riches. It would be 2 Corinthians 6, 10. Uh, Basically, as poor yet making rich, as having nothing yet possessing all things, the poor have little or nothing here, but they are extremely wealthy in eternity. Amen? Okay. So that's what he's talking about here. Verse 5 declares they have an inheritance with the kingdom. Christ rules, and that is the sphere of his rule, and all Christians are in the kingdom under his rule, and we're looking forward to him physically ruling this planet for a thousand years. But the poor will inherit the fullness of salvation and the richness of God's eternal blessing. There are no poor, there are no outcasts in the kingdom. There's no poor in heaven. No one is poor in heaven. One more time. Write it down. No one is poor in heaven. No one. Everyone will be living in the Father's house and they will be lavished with the Father's eternal riches as family. They're family. So James points out verse 6, but you have dishonored the poor man. He's asking his readers, how can you look down on the poor and and treat them with partiality? Uh, James says you're guilty of despising the very people that God most often chooses. And the next... 
How often can you give preference and how can you give preference to the rich? Verse 6, halfway through to the verse 7. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you've been called? Not only do they drag you into civic court, they drag you into religious court. They, they, to oppress there, you might want to write that in your Bible, it means to tyrannize. They tyrannize you. They tyrannize Christians. The rich here are literally dragging believers against their will into court. It's the same word that God uses when he saves us. He drags us to himself against their will. And then verse 7, do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? All Christians, would you agree with this, publicly declare Christ? Yes? In fact, if you don't declare Christ, you're not a Christian. All right? Every Christian declares Christ openly. You do. But when you do that, then you become known by a fair name. And that fair name, you know what that means? It means the beautiful name. It means the noble name. And that name is Christian. Those who belong to Christ. The rich were blaspheming Christ followers. That never happens today, right? Come on, are you with me? Do you watch sometimes a commercial or watch something and you're, you're like, oh, it's like they stab you in the heart. It, actors on award shows, scenes in movies where Christ is slandered, attacked, and Christians belittled, it's all today done by the rich, the wealthy, why in the world would you show preference to those who attack Christ and harm you? That's what he's saying. Why would you do that? James is reminding believers you all belong to Jesus Christ, the fair name. Don't ever be partial by rejecting the needy and those who see their need for a Savior, and whom God often chooses for eternal riches. Don't ever saddle up next to the rich. They're the ones who oppress you and slander the glorious name of Christ. That's what he's saying. There's more that he wants to say, and he really wants to drive this home. In order to get there, you got to come back. Next week, yeah, okay, so take this home. Well, actually, it'll be two weeks. Letter A, partiality does not mean you can't have friends. Whew. Good one, huh? James is clear. He's direct. Favoritism, partiality toward anyone is sin. And James is not talking about friendships. Don't confuse the two. Not everyone can equally be the friend of every other Christian. Let me say that again. Not everyone can equally be the Christian, the friend, and equally be the friend of every other Christian. Now, I think in heaven we will be. I don't think there'll be anybody in this room that you don't know really, 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 really well. Better than your wife, better than your husband. You're going to know people in a way that you never have before. That's heaven. But right now, there are always levels of friendship, and Jesus himself even demonstrates different levels of intimacy. I mean, in Christ's life, there was the multitudes, and then there was the 120 in the upper room, and then there was the 70 that he invested in, and then there were the 12, and even in the 12, there were the three, Peter, James, and John, and even with the three, there was the one, John, whom he loved in a unique way. Friendships are not what he's addressing here in partiality. It's okay to have friends. It's good to have friends. Loving people selectively on the basis of externals is what he's talking about. Loving people selectively on the basis of externals. And James is talking about the disease of our society. What's the disease of our society? We love things and use people. When the Bible says we need to love people and use things. It's the exact opposite. Friendships 
can be healthy, especially when they prod you toward becoming like Christ. And by the way, students, friendships can also be unhealthy as they drag you away from intimacy with Christ. So understand, we never use friendships as an excuse to diss other people or to be partial or to treat others poorly. Letter B, partiality is divisive and man-centered. If you're that, let's put it this way. I'll give an illustration as James did. You're the head of a team to accomplish a particular ministry. And you're in that ministry and you got to pick some people to be a part of that team. But instead of picking the people who are gifted in a unique way to accomplish that ministry, you start favoring. Oh, I'm going to get a doctor and a banker and a lawyer. You know, I'm not going to get the plumber. Of course, they're wealthy now. Uh, 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 the painter, the mechanic, whatever. Or I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick the people I feel sorry for because nobody ever chooses them. What happens when you play favorites, even in that context? Well, the ministry will be done poorly. You'll hurt the church. The Holy Spirit will be quenched. The fire will be done because those who were sovereignly chosen to do that ministry were overlooked. Understand, favoritism quenches the spirit and limits the work of Christ. Think about this. Favoritism, listen, favoritism toward the wealthy is elitism. Favoritism toward the poor is socialism. And both are destructive to God's church. Christ is our glorious Lord. He's the one to whom all favor should be shown. That's where the favoritism is. He's the favored one. To kowtow to men is to put them in the place of Christ. Understand ministry is not about, well, who's going to feel bad if I overlook them? and Who will give me the greatest amount of influence? But who has God chosen? It's, it's sovereignty. Who has God chosen to do this? Then let them do it. Because then it'll be he gets the glory and not us. And let her see, partiality can't be conquered unless you're in love with Christ. Unless you're in love with Christ. The only way you can battle sin is to have Christ die for your sin. The, you must be turning from your man-centered sin to depending on Christ who died for sin. You must believe that he is the God-man who lived perfectly, died as your substitute, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and is coming back. Wait, some of you are putting your notes away. What, what are you doing? This is criminal. When he saves you, he gives you a heart that wants to follow him with your life. He empowers you through his spirit. He enables you to think differently about people, to love people and not treat them partially with favoritism. You won't be totally free from this sin until heaven. But you will become able to love others impartially. And there's real power in that, friends. Real power. You really do put Christ on display when you love people equally, not externally. And as a Christian, the more you love Christ the less you will be tempted to get things from people. The more Christ satisfies your soul, the more you will be able to love others the way that God wants you to impartially. The more intimate you are with Christ, the less need you will have from people. Won't you consider recharging your life with the word and prayer? Won't you consider depending upon the Spirit of God? Won't you light up your desire by being around people who are on fire for Christ, who begin to try to treat people equally and impartially? Won't you pursue reaching out with the love of Christ 
to everyone, everyone, even the people that used to scare you with the message of Christ, the gospel, who desperately needs salvation because when you're full of the love of Christ, it's shed abroad in your heart, but now you're activating that spirit that is put in you to love others, you will impartially love others. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this challenge from James. We pray, Father, that we truly might be loving others with greater intensity. (laughs) And Father, may it not be on the basis of externals, whether I know them or not, whether I've ever met them before, that give me the ability to love others fully and equally, even to those I don't know. And Lord, never on the basis of how they look, never on the basis of race, never on the basis of their appearance or their clothing or their economic standing or what school they went to, but always on the basis of what you have done for us, what, how, what you have given us, the riches that we have in you. And Father, if there are any here who are locked into a system of externals and judgment and and enslavement to partiality, would you free them by awakening in their heart and giving them a heart that wants to turn and follow you, that wants to turn from their sin and depend on you completely, to surrender to you, not just a sticker that they put on saying, I believe in Jesus, but a, an actual life that is surrendered to Jesus Christ, recognizing he died on the cross for their sins and rose from the dead. He's perfect. He's God. He was veiled And people treated him with great partiality. And yet he is the impartial God. Help us to be people who begin to love others in a way that goes way beyond. That's supernatural. And we'll give you the glory for what you'll do. We love you. We thank you. And we ask now that we would be doers of your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Thanks for listening today. Sermon audio from the last three years is available by podcast, and a larger archive from Chris Mueller and Faith Bible Church can be found at media.faith-bible.net. And if you would, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps a lot. Thanks, and have a great day.